The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Real World Challenges and Solutions with BTKI in CLL Therapeutic Insights for Community Practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash DWY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Real World Challenges and Solutions with BTK Inhibitors in CLL. My name is Dr. Jennifer Wyack. I'm from The Ohio State University. I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague who is in community practice, Dr. Jeffrey Rose from the Adena Cancer Center in Chillicothe, Ohio. Today, we are going to explore how academic and community-based clinicians use the BTK inhibitor class of agents in the management of CLL. Throughout the program, we'll show you how our decisions are informed by clinical evidence and also discuss differences and similarities in how we manage our patients. We'll also share several resources that summarize important information on BTK inhibitor options during our discussion, as well as resources providing take-homes from our case discussions. You'll want to refer to these practice aids throughout, so please take a moment to download these tools before we get started. Let's begin. So here we can see the currently approved BTK inhibitors for CLL and SLL, as well as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. You can see that ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and most recently, zanabrutinib are all approved for use in CLL. We also have two non-covalent BTK inhibitors, which we'll mention briefly, pirtobrutinib and nemtobrutinib, that are under active clinical investigation and hopefully will be able to be used in CLL in the future. In January 2023, the FDA approved the non-covalent BTK inhibitor, pirtobrutinib, for the treatment of adults with relapsed or refractory mantle cell lymphoma after at least two lines of systemic therapy, including a BTK inhibitor. Pertobrutinib continues to be assessed in clinical trials in the CLL setting. Despite the advances that have happened in the treatment of CLL, real-world data suggests that there's a lot more work that needs to be done. There was a study using the Flatiron database from 280 U.S. cancer centers looking at people who are initiating treatment in the first-line setting for CLL. Although many of the patients did receive first-line targeted therapy, still about a third received chemoimmunotherapy, and 20% received only anti-CD20 antibody therapy. As well, another real-world study that was done um, between 2013 and 2021, again, capturing most of the time that targeted therapies were available for the use of CLL, 48% of all patients received either chemoimmunotherapy, chemotherapy without an antibody, or single-agent rituximab in the frontline setting. We really think that all patients should be given the opportunity to receive targeted therapy. And so learning more about these options in CLL is very helpful for both our knowledge and our patients. There are some Uh, challenges that uh, can be in place when using a BTK inhibitor for a CLL, whether it's in the frontline setting or for relapsed refractory disease. And one of the big ones is toxicity. So because we have these continuous therapies that we uh, plan to use until disease progression, sometimes side effects that wouldn't be a big deal if you were using a therapy for a short period of time can really be um, an impairment to the patient's quality of life when you're experiencing the same toxicity for many years. Despite clinical trials, which usually show about 15% of patients discontinuing BTK inhibitors, real-world analyses tend to show much higher rates of BTK inhibitor discontinuation. In a um, retrospective look at the U.S. experience, in the real-world setting, about 42% of patients discontinued ibrutinib due to toxicity. There was also a study in Denmark which found the same 42% discontinuation rate with 55% of the discontinuations due to adverse events. Looking at um, the figure on the right here, you can see that the incidence of these adverse events is the highest within the first six months of treatment, but does continue to occur throughout the duration of therapy. Another challenge with BTK inhibitors, of course, is resistance. And while many patients can enjoy many years of progression-free survival with these agents, most patients eventually will relapse even in the frontline setting. Here we see um, a study that uh, we did looking at our patients from Ohio State, mostly treated on clinical trials, and you can see kind of the patterns of discontinuation over time. So we see that 
progression actually is with CLL is not something that tends to occur early in the course of therapy. Um, here, the dark line is progression of CLL. The light blue line is Richter's transformation, and the gold line is other events. So other events can happen anytime during the course of treatment. And some of that is adverse events. Some of it is just patients deciding that they don't want to take the medication anymore. Um, the Richter's transformations tend to happen very early, usually within the first two years of treatment. And progressions tend to start happening around two years of therapy and then pick up over time. Many of these uh, progression events are heralded by the development of resistance mutations in BTK itself or its immediate downstream target, PLC gamma 2 and we'll talk a little bit more about this later. Once patients become resistant to BTK inhibitors, venetoclax is the only FDA-approved option that um, has a good progression-free survival associated with it. Um, but still, those patients eventually will relapse. And real-world data shows us that double refractory patients, so refractory to BTK and BCL2 inhibitors, is really an unmet need in CLL. Um, looking at this study, this was, a, again, a retrospective look showing that patients who did become refractory to both classes only had a median overall survival of about 5.5 months. I think this is improved with therapies that are available in clinical trials. Um, but still, these patients um, really represent those who uh, urgent intervention is needed. So our goals today, um, first is to provide you with an understanding of the evidence from pivotal clinical trials and practice guidelines on BTK inhibitor efficacy, safety, and some of the mechanistic and selective selectivity differences among the agents. We want to prepare you with strategies for personalized BTK inhibitor therapy for patients with treatment-naive CLL based upon their prognostic information, the presence of comorbidities, as well as safety considerations. We want to instill you with the confidence in selecting individualized, potentially sequential BTK inhibitor options for the management of patients with pretreated CLL, and as well equip you to manage adverse events associated with BTK inhibitors in CLL. All right, so let's start with a case. Um, this is Susan. She's a 73-year-old woman who has symptomatic treatment-naive CLL. Um, she does have diabetes, but has a very good performance status, and her diabetes is under good control. When looking at her prognostic features, she has unmutated IGHV and complex karyotype, and that, again, means three or more cytogenetic abnormalities looking at a full karyotype. So our questions for this case is, given this presentation, what are the options for treatment and what evidence supports consider consideration of continuous BTK inhibitor therapy? We'll come back to this case in a little bit, but let me show you some evidence first. So this is uh, the NCCN guidelines for the treatment of CLL and SLL, both with and without TP53 alterations in the frontline setting. And you can see the preferred agents actually for either one of these cases would be acalabrutinib with or without obinutuzumab, venetoclax plus obinutuzumab, and then xanabrutinib. Ibrutinib still is on the list, but is currently listed as an other recommended regimen. And this can be either alone or in combination with an anti-CD20 antibody, or in some cases, even consideration of ibrutinib given with venetoclax. Ibrutinib was kind of downgraded to this other recommended regimen only based upon the safety profile because we don't think that the efficacy um, is any different or at least much worse with ibrutinib when looking at it compared with other BTK inhibitors. So currently, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are the preferred agents. When we look at longer follow-up from the pivotal studies that led to FDA approval of the BTK inhibitors in CLL, we can see that long in the long term, there is still um, very durable remissions with these agents. So here we have a few of the clinical trials. So on the left, the Alliance AO41202 study, which was ibrutinib with or without rituximab versus bendamustine plus rituximab. And at 48 months, about two-thirds, I'm sorry, about three-quarters of patients treated with ibrutinib remain progression-free. No difference with ibrutinib if it was combined with rituximab. With acalabrutinib, we have five years of follow-up from the LMA-TN study um, showing an 84% progression-free survival rate for acalabrutinib plus of and a 72% PFS rate with acalabrutinib alone. 
The Sequoia study, which led to the FDA approval of Xanabrunib, has much shorter follow-up, but at 24 months, progression-free survival was 86% with Xanabrunib. So though the follow-ups are all different with these agents, um, it looks like they all provide similar efficacy over the long term. So what principles will help us decide on treatment for the particular patient that we talked about before? So one thing is comorbidities. And for this particular patient, the diabetes is not really relevant for deciding between BTK inhibitors and venetoclaxomenetuzumab. We'll talk a little bit about other comorbidities that might make a difference, though. We also think about risk stratification. Um, so patients who have higher risk features like unmutated IGHV, complex karyotype, TP53 alterations may do better with continuous treatment than intermittent therapy. So maybe do better with a BTK inhibitor than venetoclaxobinutuzumab. That being said, even with higher risk features, patients treated with venetoclaxobinutuzumab can't expect to enjoy years of progression-free survival. Um, it's just that with that particular regimen, there's a little bit more difference in how people do depending on their uh, risk abnormalities. Whereas with BTK inhibitors, with the follow-up we have, most patients, even with very high genomic risk disease, will have long progression-free survivals. And then probably the biggest consideration when we're deciding between a BTK inhibitor and fixed-duration venetoclaxobinutuzumab is really patient preferences. Um, so some patients prefer the ease of administration um, of a BTK inhibitor, and they don't really mind that they're taking a continuous therapy as long as it's well-tolerated. Other patients have a strong desire for a time-limited treatment with this goal of disease eradication and don't mind that it's a little bit more cumbersome in the beginning. And so those patients really uh, will do very well with venetoclaxobinutuzumab and those, that those patients should be considered for that regimen. And then other factors that may make us um, choose against one or the other, BTK inhibitor or venetoclaxobinutuzumab. So examples of some scenarios where BTK inhibitors should probably be avoided. So patients who have a history of bleeding, like, so somebody with hemophilia, other uh, bleeding abnormalities, or who have had significant bleeds in the past, I'd be really concerned about treating them with a BTK inhibitor that we know um, does have the potential for significant bleeding. Um, similarly, patients who are on warfarin for their anticoagulation. So all of the clinical trials of BTK inhibitors in CLL excluded patients who are taking warfarin because the original ibrutinib studies um, showed a high rate of significant bleeding for patients on warfarin. Other anticoagulations like DOAX or even Lovenox seem to be better tolerated with BTK inhibitors and can be used with caution, but I usually do not use warfarin in patients on a BTK inhibitor. As well, because of the um, small but real risk of ventricular arrhythmias with BTK inhibitors, at least with ibrutinib and, uh, and acalabrutinib, anybody who has a history of a ventricular arrhythmia, I don't put them on a BTK inhibitor. And then some scenarios where you wouldn't want to use venetoclaxobinutuzumab. I think the big ones here are uh, patients who can't tolerate the fluid intake that's required for the um, ramp up of venetoclax and the obinutuzumab. So patients um, who have kidney dysfunction with a creatinine clearance of less than 30, those that have maybe um, heart failure or some other reason why they have volume overload that's difficult to um, give additional fluid. Okay, so let's go back to our case. Um, so this is Susan, symptomatic CLL, IGHB unmutated, complex karyotype. So what are the options here? So current evidence really supports either a continuous BTK inhibitor or a fixed-duration venetoclaxobinutuzumab. Usually with this type of patient who has multiple high-risk features, um, I will make sure that the patient understands that they are likely to have a longer remission with a continuous BTK inhibitor than with a fixed-duration treatment, although, as mentioned, either one of those are really appropriate options. So I kind of lead towards a continuous BTK inhibitor in this case, but again, if a patient really wants fixed-duration therapy, I'm more than happy and I, to do that, and I think that that's um, reasonable as well. Um, so Jeffrey, what about in the community setting? Would you favor one of these treatments over the other? So, you know, I work in a rural community setting in Chillicothe, Ohio, and that serves a lot of Southeast Ohio, and that includes some of Western Appalachia. And where I work, uh, transportation and cost of transportation are real obstacles to oncologic care. 
And usually my patients, when offered the choice between an oral therapy or an in-house infused therapy, they almost always choose an oral therapy, even if it means it's gonna be a lifelong duration therapy or disease long duration of therapy. Um, so almost always it's an oral therapy. I've not used yet venetoclax and venetuzumab in the first line for CLL in the patients I've treated so far. Um, that being said, I would agree with you in this setting with a complex care type unmuted IGVH, I'd prefer continuous BTK inhibition, and that's, that'd be my approach. Great. Um, yeah, I think practice patterns in the United States also really would support that many patients, um, you know, especially who don't live really close to the centers that they're going to for their care, um, do prefer those continuous treatments just because of the ease of administration. So let's think about, um, you know, if, if this case was presented a little bit differently. Um, what about if Susan had, you know, uncontrolled hypertension, uh, but a good performance status, unmutated IGHV, complex karyotype still, um, what evidence could guide treatment selection? So, you know, previously we had said maybe a continuous therapy with a BTK inhibitor, but we hadn't really discussed which of the currently available BTK inhibitors we might use. So let's talk a little bit about the difference among those BTK inhibitors. So here is um, sort of a complicated slide, but looking at the selectivity of our different BTK inhibitors that we use in CLL. Um, so these are kinase inhibition maps. And so basically, you know, each of those like green dots or spokes coming off of the lines indicate a kinase. Each red dot shows you a kinase that's inhibited by the drug and the bigger the circle, the stronger the inhibition. So just visually, when you're looking at this, you can see that ibrutinib is a very non-selective inhibitor of BTK. Acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are much more selective, and acalabrutinib probably, well, not probably, acalabrutinib is the most selective of our covalent BTK inhibitors. We also have up here our non-covalent BTK inhibitors, pirtobrutinib and nemtobrutinib. And you can see nemtobrutinib as well is a very non-selective BTK inhibitor whereas pirtobrutinib is extremely selective, even more selective than acalabrutinib is. And the reason this is important is that we think that a lot of the side effects that we see with BTK inhibitors are not actually due to the inhibition of BTK, but due to some of these off-target effects. And, you know, potentials of where this might be important is tech, um, which is a kinase that is um, structurally very similar to BTK and actually is hit by basically all of these compounds, um, can lead to bleeding, potentially can lead to cardiac toxicity as well. Um, there's another kinase called CSK, which also is potentially implicated in the atrial fibrillation that we see with um, some of the BTK inhibitors. EGFR, another um, kinase that we're very familiar with in the treatment of other cancers, but is hit um, with especially ibrutinib here, um, we think might be associated with some of the rash, diarrhea, and arthralgias that we see with these agents. Jeff, kind of getting back to the case, do you have um, a BTK inhibitor that you generally use for patients who have hypertension? We'll talk a little bit more about the data and stuff, of course. So since calbrutinib was uh, FDA approved, I think in 2017, that's been my exclusive BTK I've used since that time. I still have two patients on ibrutinib that was started prior to approval, and they're doing just fine on that therapy, but I've used exclusively a calbrutinib. And it's interesting, I actually have a 91-year-old lady who required treatment recently, and she was really worried, about, she has no significant risk factors, but was really worried about the ventricular arrhythmia aspect of it, and her insurance approval was, or preference, I should say, was ibrutinib, but also we got a calbrutinib approved for her because she just refused to take ibrutinib. Um, so no, I almost use exclusively a calbrutinib uh, here for the past five years. Great. Yeah. And that's, that's been our experience as well. Like really a move toward those second generation BTK inhibitors. So let's talk about why that is. Um, so first here we have kind of the recommended workup, um, prior to starting a BTK inhibitor in CLL. So first, of course, it's important to take a history. You want to make sure that, um, you know, any concomitant medications, cardiovascular risk factors, any history of valvular heart disease, history of arrhythmias, history of heart failure. Um, and then patients should have, of course, blood pressure measured and an electrocardiogram before starting a BTK inhibitor. If you know that patients have high cardiovascular risk or known coronary artery disease or condition of heart failure, 
I think it's reasonable to do an echocardiogram at baseline as well. Um, and consider using, um, like a, uh, framing hand wrist stratification, uh, score for stratification of these patients. So treatment selection, you know, for patients who don't have cardiovascular risk factors, really any BTK inhibitor would be appropriate. Of course, the NCCN guidelines again recommend the second generation acalgrine and borzanabrutinib. And especially for patients um, who have some sort of safety concerns, um, one of the second generation inhibitors is the best one to use or consideration of a BCL2 inhibitor instead where you really don't have that cardiovascular risk. For patients who have no cardiovascular risk, so maybe have well-controlled atrial fibrillation or a history of paroxysmal AFib, hypertension, heart failure, lobular heart disease. Again, some of these patients are probably best served using venetoclax. Um, but if you're going to use a BTK inhibitor, you really want to be using a second-generation agent for these patients. Um, so there have now been two head-to-head -head studies looking at second-generation BTK inhibitor versus ibrutinib. Again, these are the studies that led to acalabrutinib and xenobrutinib being the preferred agents. So here we have some data from the Elevate RR study, which compared head-to-head ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. Um, we did see a equivalent progression-free survival between these two agents, and really it's side effects that differentiated these treatments. Um, so here we're looking at atrial fibrillation, and we see that the AFib rate with ibrutinib at 16% is significantly higher than the 9.4% we see with acalabrutinib. And that's actually even a little bit higher than I think most people were expecting to see with acalabrutinib. Um, it may be driven uh, by a lot of patients at baseline having a history of AFib. When you look down at the bottom of this table here, so people who didn't have prior AFib or AFlutter had a 6.2% risk of developing AFib on acalabrutinib and uh, about a 15% risk of developing AFib on ibrutinib. We also see that hypertension is significantly higher with ibrutinib than acalabrutinib. So um, grade three or higher is 9% with ibrutinib, 4% with acalabrutinib, um, and total uh, hypertension is about 23% of patients with ibrutinib and 9% of patients with acalabrutinib. When we look at bleeding events, this is, I think, kind of important here to differentiate between major bleeding events and then bruising. And so bruising is much more common with ibrutinib than acalabrutinib, 51% compared to 38%. Major bleeding events, though, are fairly similar and probably fairly similar among all three of these agents. Here's um, a couple of uh, figures looking at cumulative incidence of diarrhea and arthralgia, um, where you can see that the rate of diarrhea and arthralgia is a little bit higher with ibrutinib compared to acalabrutinib. Um, I think clinically we see this maybe even more strikingly than um, we see in figures like this. I think with some of these toxicities like arthralgia, if you're looking at patients primarily in their 70s, over the course of three, four years, a lot of patients are going to develop arthralgia, whether it's related to drugs or not. Um, here we're going to the Alpine study, which compared head-to-head ibrutinib versus xanabrutinib. This is a um, relatively recent study. It was presented at um, ASH in 2022 and came out in the New England Journal simultaneously. Um, this study, again, has a shorter follow-up than what we see with most of the acalabrutinib or ibrutinib studies, um, but you can see that there is a much higher rate of atrial fibrillation with ibrutinib compared to xanabrutinib. So at about 30 months of follow-up, 13% of patients on ibrutinib developed atrial fibrillation compared to 5.2% of patients treated with xanabrutinib. Um, here we're looking at cardiac adverse events, again, more common with ibrutinib compared to xanabrutinib. Um, throughout, but primarily driven by um, some of these arrhythmia events and even um, sudden death cardiac arrest. So what principles can help us guide the frontline selection? So first, as mentioned, evidence shows that the more selective BTK inhibitors are better tolerated with respect to the cardiac adverse events and off-target effects. And because of that, more selective BTK inhibitors should be considered for more patients. And again, as mentioned, our preferred options in the NCCN guidelines. I think this is especially important when we're thinking about older patients who are more likely to have cardiovascular risk factors and where like the risk of atrial fibrillation is much higher. So let's go back to our patient. Um, so now she has hypertension and we've seen that both 
um, the Elevate RR study in Alpine show lower cardiac risk with the second generation BTK inhibitors. Um, I didn't really mention this distinction too much, but hypertension specifically seems to be a differentiating side effect between acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, where acalabrutinib has a much lower rate of hypertension compared to ibrutinib. Xanabrutinib and ibrutinib actually have fairly similar rates of hypertension. So if hypertension is specifically the side effect we're worried about, I tend to favor acalabrutinib. Now, conversely, Atrial fibrillation does appear to be lower with xanabrutinib when looking um, across trials compared to acalabrutinib. Um, that's maybe a little bit of a harder generalization to make, again, because of the shorter um, duration of follow-up we have on the xanabrutinib studies. But for somebody who has a history of um, atrial fibrillation or who is really worried about this as a side effect or who I'm really worried about this as a side effect, I tend to favor xanabrutinib for these patients. Jeff, um, what about, so you mentioned that you almost exclusively use acalabrutinib in your practice right now. With the new approval of xanabrutinib, are there patients who you may um, be considering use of xanabrutinib rather than um, acalabrutinib up front? Yeah, I pretty much echo your thoughts. Um, you know, as for the past five years, as I said before, acalabrutinib has been my go-to, you know, coverage permitting. There's been a few circumstances where insurance would kind of hesitate on that recommendation frustratingly. Um, but no, a calibrutinib for this patient would be my preference. Um, definitely if they have a more significant cardiovascular history from an arrhythmia perspective, I would choose to do xanabrutinib based off the recently published data. And I guess one other thing that we really haven't uh, touched on yet is um, how the dosing is different between the ibrutinib and the second generation. So ibrutinib is once a day. Both acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are twice-a-day medications. There's some data you could probably give xanabrutinib once a day if you give the entire dose at once, um, but I don't think that's really being used much in clinical practice. Do you, do you see that, Jeff, as something that um, is a big deal among your patients? I haven't. Uh, surprisingly, I haven't. It's interesting in, in the few ibrutinib patients that I've had, I've had to have, I've seen more dose reductions in that medication by my previous partners that I inherited the patients from as it compared to calibrutinib, I've never had to do any dose reductions or dose changes to calibrutinib. And from what I know, at least what my patients tell me, it doesn't seem to be a problem. Um, uh, what I also know is that with uh, atrial fibrillation, a lot of times we use, you know, cardizem or calcium channel blockers, and that is a problem with ibrutinib a little bit because of CYP3A4 inhibition. So you have to be really cautious of that. And that makes calibrutinib a little bit better, I think, more attractive in that setting as well. Uh, but no, the compliance seems not to be a problem being twice a day. Okay, so let's go to our next case. Um, again, we'll present a case, we'll show you a little bit of data, and then we'll come back to some discussion. So this is David. He's a 62-year-old man, previously healthy, um, has rise stage 1 CLL with deletion 11Q and unmutated IGHV. He developed some um, transient but severe abdominal pain and later facial and tongue swelling secondary to angioedema. And his son have an acquired C1 esterase inhibitor deficiency, which is something that can be seen with CLL. Um, so for treatment, he's receiving steroids, acatabant, and human C1 esterase inhibitor. And so our question here is, should we be using a BTK inhibitor alone? Is there a role here for combining with an anti-CD20 antibody? And what about novel combinations in general? So here we have some data from the FLARE study, and the FLARE study is actually a similar design to the ECOG-1912 study that was done in the U.S., and is ibrutinib plus rituximab versus FCR. So in this study with a median follow-up of 52.7 months, the median PFS with FCR is 66.5 months and hasn't yet been reached for ibrutinib plus rituximab. Um, we see with both the ECOG and the FLARE study that progression-free survival is significantly better with IR compared to FCR. Although what we see here is that that difference is driven by patients with IGHV unmutated disease. And at this follow-up, patients who are IGHV mutated have pretty similar PFS. In this study, no difference in overall survival is seen. Again, that's a little bit different than the ECOG study, which did show an overall survival advantage for IR compared to FCR. So because of um, the Alliance study showing no benefit of IR compared to ibrutinib, we generally don't use 
CD20 antibodies in combination with ibrutinib, just in general, though there are certainly um, specific situations where you might do that. However, acalabrutinib, when combined with obinutuzumab, um, was shown in the Elevate TN study um, to have a superior progression-free survival actually compared with acalabrutinib alone, although with the caveat that this was not a pre-specified analysis for the study. And so, you know, in general, we don't tend to use obinutuzumab with acalabrutinib in clinical practice just because it does kind of defeat one of the big benefits of continuous PPK inhibitors, which is the ease of administration and no need for IV therapy. However, um, we do see, you know, with longer follow-up from the Elevate TN study, plus other studies of acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab, um, that there may be particular subgroups of CLL where this combination might be particularly beneficial. So this forest plot is um, looking at patients who are treated with acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab compared with acalabrutinib alone, looking retrospectively at multiple studies. And you can see that, you know, in general, acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab leads to a slightly higher PFS than acalabrutinib alone. Um, though with the caveat, again, that most of these lines are crossing the midline, so the actual um, benefit is not that certain. Um, it looks like especially patients who have kind of high-risk CLL, but not very high-risk, uh, tend to be ones that benefit a lot. Um, those that have high beta to microglobulins at baseline, um, and then just in general, uh, throughout all patient characteristics, AO is a little bit um, better in terms of PFS. So another combination that is of particular interest right now is combining BTK inhibitors with venetoclax. And so ibrutinib plus venetoclax, of course, has the most data in this setting. And this comes from a couple of very uh, big studies. One that we're not going to talk about in great detail is the GLOW study, which is a phase three trial. Here we have some data from the Captivate study. Um, this is a really interesting phase two trial looking at ibrutinib plus venetoclax given in two ways. So there's a cohort of fixed duration where everybody receives one year of ibrutinib plus venetoclax. Um, here's the data from this. You can see um, that in patients with treatment-naive CLL, many of them are achieving complete remissions. About two-thirds of them were MRD undetectable at the end of treatment. And then looking at the PFS curve, of course, very short follow-up of only two years, but 95% of people remain progression-free at two years. So that's one year of treatment, one year of off-treatment. And it didn't matter whether patients had TB53 abnormalities or not. The other cohort of the Captivate study was an MRD cohort. And in this cohort, everybody started out with one year of treatment. And then at the end, those patients um, who were MRD undetectable were randomized to continue treatment with ibrutinib versus not. Those that were MRD detectable at the end of that one year either got ibrutinib after that or ibrutinib plus venetoclax. I think the really important takeaway here is that all patients, whether they received additional treatment or not, still had very long progression-free survivals or, I guess, very good progression-free survivals at three years. So, you know, just like with um, single-agent BTK inhibitor, there is a push towards incorporation of second-generation BTK inhibitors in these uh, combination therapies just because of the better uh, safety profile. And so one of the combinations that is of particular interest is acalabrutinib, venetoclax, or venetuzumab. This is a phase two study um, that was led by the group at Dana-Farber, um, showing, again, very high rates of MRD undetectable state, a lot of complete responses, and um, long remission durations with um, relatively short follow-up, even in patients with very high-risk disease. Um, I'm not going to show you data on this, but same thing has been shown for xanabrutinib, where combinations of xanabrutinib, venetoclax, or venetuzumab also leads to high rates of undetectable minimal residual disease and high rates of complete response. So let's go back to our case of David. Um, so again, higher risk CLL, but also has this acquired C1Q esterase inhibitor deficiency. And so here is somebody who we really want to get rapid disease control. And so, you know, it may be um, beneficial to add the anti-CD20 antibody to the acalabrutinib um, 
as well to kind of decrease antibody production relatively quickly. So this is a patient where I think um, adding the CD20 antibody to a calibrutinib makes a lot of sense. And Jeff, I know this is your patient, so why don't you tell us um, what you did and kind of what you think, how what you thought about in this particular case. So yes, this would be this was an interesting case. A little scary. I got contacted by this patient from home uh, with the angioedema on a Sunday morning, and promptly was admitted to the hospital on Sunday afternoon with worsening symptoms. Um, once he was confirmed to have C1S trace inhibitor uh, deficiency, uh, he was placed on replacement right away and did quite well. Um, we did special testing. His complement three level was low, and that confirmed more of an, an acquired deficiency and most likely was autoimmune, and this is well described as you stated before. Um, he got obinutuzumab uh, most of the day after he was discharged from the hospital in my office and did well with obinutuzumab for two, and while we waited for uh, pharmacy approval and receipt from his motor pharmacy for calvertinib, which took about 10 to 12 business days. So he had uh, you know, two doses of obinutuzumab prior to initiation of the calvertinib. Um, about two to three months into his treatment course, he developed recurrent issues with neutropenia. And as his disease was controlled, and as he didn't want to deal with getting GCSF for his obinutuzumab, to maintain obinutuzumab, his obinutuzumab was discontinued. And he continues on calibrutinib uh, currently with excellent control of his disease. He's been weaned off all of his uh, replacement therapy and is doing well without recurrence of angioedema. Great. Um, so that's that's a really good point that we probably um, should be sure to mention is that adding the obinutuzumab does um, add some extra toxicity to acalabrutinib. I think the most common one is that extra um, rate of neutropenia. Even though um, the actual rate of febrile neutropenia is relatively low, I think for many patients, this is a side effect that um, you know can cause people to need GCSF with maybe complications associated with that um, and extra cost as well. So um, Jeff, other patients who I sometimes consider adding the obinutuzumab to, you know, it's this, of course, is a relatively uncommon uh, complication of CLL with this you know, QS trace inhibitor deficiency. But, um, you know, patients who have autoimmune hemolytic anemia that is poorly controlled or ITP that's poorly controlled prior to going into treatment, sometimes I'll add the obinutuzumab for them as well. Um, anybody else that you usually consider it for? No, that'd be about it. Anybody with an autoimmune phenomenon uh, would be somebody I would certainly consider this with. Um, that'd be about it. I would say now with the update of the Elevate, Elevate TN uh, trip, uh, treatment naive study for patients very motivated, very desirous of wanting to do everything they can to get their CL under control, I would consider the addition of this and be a standard of care for that type of patient. Okay, so let's go to another case. So this is Alex. Um, Alex is 70 years old, again, symptomatic IGHV, unmutated CLL, really no comorbidities, who has started ibrutinib therapy at the standard dose. And unfortunately, eight months in, he experiences grade two painful arthralgias. Um, so given this presentation, we'll talk about what the options are. And, you know, if we choose to adjust the dose, what if that doesn't work? So common toxicities that we see with BTK inhibitors, um, and especially with Ibrutinib, you know, we kind of went over already some of the cardiac side effects, atrial fibrillation, hypertension. Again, bleeding is seen with all three agents, though um, bruising is higher with ibrutinib. Um, and then arthralgia and diarrhea can be seen. Infections, again, is something that's kind of seen with all CLL therapies, including the inhibitors. Um, and then other important toxicities, dermatologic changes, again, much more pronounced with ibrutinib. Fatigue is seen with all of the agents. Um, ventral rhythm, as we discussed, and then cytopenias, again, can be seen with, with all of these agents, <laughs> maybe a little bit more neutropenia with xanabrutinib. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit about how we manage some of these toxicities. So um, atrial fibrillation. Now, um, in my practice, it sort of depends on which BTK inhibitor they're on. And so if they're on ibrutinib, I will switch to another BTK inhibitor at, at the onset of atrial fibrillation. You know, consider non-warfarin anticoagulation, of course, with monitoring for bleeding. Um, and definitely, these are patients that should be managed in conjunction with cardiology to see whether maybe they would um, be a candidate for an ablation procedure or a watchman procedure, too. Um, Jeff, any other uh, points for atrial fibrillation? 
you know, my very first patient I treated with ivermectin developed atrial fibrillation two months into treatment. And um, I, luckily, he was, he was an elderly gentleman. It was all we had for treatment at the time. Uh, there was nothing else approved. I put him on metoprolol, put him on Eliquis, sent him to cardiology, and he's not had issues since that time. Um, so I've been kind of blessed from that perspective. Uh, now, I'd probably change his treatment uh, instead. But in hindsight, this approach worked fine for him as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the times of the ibrutinib trials and when that was all that we had, we, we would manage patients through atrial fibrillation with ibrutinib all the time. Um, the newer guidelines in the package insert actually have some management guidance for um, cardiac side effects with ibrutinib and usually um, also recommend dose reduction, which is something that could be considered as well. Um, again, hypertension, changing to a more selective BTK inhibitor, especially acalabrutinib could help. And then arthrologists, this is a huge one in clinical practice. Um, and again, more common with ibrutinib than with the second generation inhibitors is sometimes seen with the second generation inhibitors. Um, potential options for management, you know, of course, they can use acetaminophen, topical NSAIDs, sparingly systemic NSAIDs. Of course, that does risk, uh, increase the risk for bleeding. Um, one thing that I used to do a lot, especially when ibrutinib was was used more frequently, is low-dose prednisone for a couple of weeks, which seemed to um, work. And actually, um, many patients wouldn't even need additional courses of that. Um, and then um, most of the kind of clinical experience suggests that dose holds are more effective than dose reductions with arthrologists, but certainly dose reductions can be considered as well. Um, Jeff, any other comments about arthrologists? Oh, I've been blessed. I have not had to worry about this uh, too much, or my patients just don't complain too much about it. Um, I would say I've always kind of thought about approaching this like I would an aromatase inhibitor in breast cancer, where a lot of times just sometimes uh, holding therapy for a period of time sometimes helps, then reintroduction. I have used for other arthralgias, really do the therapies, short course prednisone, that seems to work well. And then certainly a switching drug also I've used in other disease states where we have problems with this seems to help as well. Um, but no, luckily I've been, I've not had to worry about this. Uh, the only other thing I would add, if they did have, uh, moderate symptoms though, I would certainly check for other conditions like check their sed rate, CRP, CPK, uh, rheumatoid factor, ANA, just make sure there's nothing else that could be causing issues, any other autoimmune phenomena that could be causing issues as well. Great point. Um, okay, and then some of the other side effects, actually, these ones are more commonly seen with the second generation BTK inhibitor. So kind of the big one here is headaches, which is a typical side effect with acalabrutinib, not really seen with the other uh, drugs. Tends to happen early if it's going to happen. Usually, even if you don't do anything, it generally goes away within a couple months. Um, acetaminophen makes it better. Caffeine makes it better. Um, Jeff, any other tricks that you've used with uh, acalabrutinib-associated headaches? Uh, no, not really. Just Tylenol. Tylenol has been been well for me. Works well for me. Great. And then neutropenia. Again, this is probably a little bit more common with xanabrutinib and ibrutinib. Um, Jeff, how do you manage uh, neutropenia with these patients? So um, usually it would be a, a dose, uh, not a dose reduction, excuse me, more of a dose holiday. Um, with a calbrutinib, I've not had that problem outside that one patient I think was more obinutuzumab derived. Um, so I've not had to hold anybody for neutropenia. Um, sometimes when they're, sometimes they're CLL, they have associated neutropenia. And as long as they're asymptomatic and their other counts are improving, I monitor it. I really don't uh, change things unless they're having problems with the neutropenia, if it's mild and, and improving, especially with initiation of treatment. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, just because many of these patients have so much of their bone marrow involved with CLL, they, they often will get neutropenia initially. And sometimes it's, I think, even more of a spurious neutropenia where the white count is so high, it just looks like they have more neutropenia than they actually do. Um, so I try not to stop it very early on in therapy because a lot of times you can just treat through that and it'll get better. Um, you know, sometimes we'll use uh, a GCSF if, you know, there's, you know, a very significant neutropenia or it's a little bit more prolonged. Um, but, you know, certainly, especially in patients who have been on it a little bit longer, these dose interruptions can be really helpful. And then um, sometimes can start at the same dose, sometimes going down a dose level uh, will be helpful as well. Dr. Wojak, when you're, when you're starting somebody on a calbrutinib, how often are you seeing neutropenia on a calbrutinib alone? I've not seen that. 
Yeah, I don't see that very often either. Um, you know, mostly just kind of the scenario that you described where they have neutropenia baseline or, you know, like I said, sometimes if their white count goes up a lot, you know, if they had a white count of 200 and it goes up to 500, a lot of times it'll look like they're neutropenia where probably they actually are not. So let's um, talk just briefly about um, uh, concomitant medications with the BTK inhibitors. Um, again, there's an expanded version of this material that's available as a practice aid, and then it will be really helpful because there's, I, I think it's you know really helpful whenever you're adding another drug to somebody who's taking a BTK inhibitor to just look quickly and make sure that it's not going to be something that is contraindicated. Um, I'll also highlight the fact that all of these BTK inhibitors were tested in higher doses than they're currently given, and there's really not a lot of extra toxicity if you do, um, if they are uh, exposed to a CYP3A4 inhibitor or something like that for a short period of time. Usually people actually won't have a lot of extra toxicity, um, but certainly something to think about. Um, so basically all of the drugs, you need to do some sort of um, modification if you're giving a strong CYP3A4 inhibitor. And many times it's actually to just stop the BTK inhibitor or interrupt for a period of time. Um, moderate inhibitors or um, inducers, again, just, you know, kind of look and see what needs to happen for the individual agent. Um, one point that I want to bring up that we are seeing a lot right now is Paxlovid, which is a CYP, uh, 3A4 inhibitor. And it is recommended that when somebody is getting Paxlovid, you discontinue the BTK inhibitor during the time of administration. So just during that five days. And then we usually just restart at the same dose after. Um, for very select patients, like you just started, they have, um, you know, very poor disease control, or you know that they flare if they stop and really need the Paxlovid. Um, sometimes we'll actually just uh, decrease the dose in half. Um, so instead of, you know, twice a day calibrutinib, do it just once a day or drop the xanabrutinib dose in half. Um, but that's just for select patients. And then, um, you know, the other thing that we always used to think about uh, with these drugs is the proton pump inhibitors. And that was specifically with the acalabrutinib capsules where you couldn't co-administer them. Now, acalabrutinib has transitioned to tablets rather than capsules, and you can use the tablets regardless of PPIs or other acid-blocking agents. Um, Jeff, is that your practice that you, you know, just kind of think about every time you start a new drug and somebody with a BTK inhibitor, check and see if there's any um, dose modifications? I do, yes. And that's something that used to be, especially with, uh, like I said, the cardiovascular drugs, arrhythmia drugs, things like that, to be careful with cardizem. Uh, grapefruit, a lot of my old people eat grapefruit, I think something you said to be cognizant of. Uh, and so many of my patients are on PPIs. Um, it's been an issue. And normally we just try to dose delay best that we can or gap the dosing best that we can for people who have to be on a PPI while on a calibrutinib. And we just try to minimize exposure to the PPI best that we can. So with these uh, side effects, there's actually been a number of clinical trials that have looked to see if switching BTK inhibitors can be an effective option of mitigating side effects. And so it's been seen now with acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib that switching um, BTK inhibitors often uh, will eliminate the toxicity associated with the previous inhibitor and doesn't and it doesn't come back. So if you have somebody on ibrutinib, you can switch to acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib and likely see that side effect go away. If you have somebody on acalabrutinib, you actually can likely switch to xanabrutinib and see that side effect go away. Um, with xanabrutinib, there's really no data to do this, but I would also consider uh, going to acalabrutinib to see if um, that drug is more tolerable. Um, I'll mention quickly the non-covalent inhibitor, pirtobrutinib. We're going to discuss this more in just a few minutes. Um, but pirtobrutinib, as I mentioned previously, is a very, very selective inhibitor of BTK and has been extremely well tolerated. Um, there was a study as part of the phase one, two Bruin trial looking at patients who came off of a previous BTK inhibitor due to intolerance. And in general, that side effect did not reoccur when they were taking pirtobrutinib. So going back to our case for a minute, um, I think we've talked about management of some of these side effects in detail, but so with Alex, he has painful arthralgias. Um, I would initiate supportive care. And if, so, if that didn't work, so if acetaminophen, topical NSAIDs, maybe some systemic NSAIDs and prednisone didn't work, 
Um, I would do a dose holiday, um, then consider a dose reduction afterward, and um, really have a low threshold for switching to a more selective MTK inhibitor. Um, Jeffrey, how about you? Yeah, like I echoed before, um, very similar approach, topical NSAIDs uh, like diclofenac, uh, short course prednisone, um, a drug holiday, maybe a dose reduction. I think drug holidays appear from what I've uh, read to be a little bit better. Um, for moderate, I would check for the other potential things that could be causing aches and pains besides maybe uh, the BTK inhibitor. And then obviously for persistent symptoms, I would change drug. All right, so now let's um, switch gears a little bit um, away from toxicity into progression. So Alex now has been on his BTK inhibitor for two years. You got over the um, arthralgias. Um, but unfortunately, after two years, he starts having lymphadenopathy and B symptoms. And so what are we going to do at this point? So let's start by looking at a little bit of data. Um, first, you know, as I mentioned briefly before, acquired resistance to ibrutinib and acalabrutinib and probably xanabrutinib too is generally driven by mutations in BTK. And so the most common mutation that we see is a mutation actually at the binding site of the drug, C481. Um, we also occasionally will see mutations in PLC gamma 2. So that's the kinase that's immediately downstream of BTK. And even though BTK is still inhibited by the drug, this turns the cellular signaling back on. Uh, there are other rare resistance mutations and um, kind of other mutations potentially seen with xanabrutinib more specifically um, that I think we're still trying to learn about what's the best way to manage those in terms of what's the next best medication. But basically, BTK resistance um, with these mutations will diminish the efficacy of all covalent BTK inhibitors. So if somebody develops a mutation uh, or resistance on acalabrutinib, you can't switch to ibrutinib or xanabrutinib. That's not going to work. Um, the only FDA-approved agent currently that has um, robust activity in BTK inhibitor refractory CLL is venetoclax. Um, so this is a study of venetoclax given continuously as a single agent, actually, after um, patients um, progressed on ibrutinib. And here, about two-thirds of patients um, responded to the drug. Medium PFS is about two years. One of the exciting developments in clinical trials right now are the non-covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, so we mentioned these before a little bit in terms of just their selectivity profile. Uh, the two that are very far in clinical development are nemtabrutinib and pirtobrutinib. Uh, nemtabrutinib has a phase two dose of 65 milligrams once daily and is active in patients with C41 mutations, and potentially PLC gamma 2 mutations as well. Pirtobrutinib is a very selective non-covalent BTK inhibitor. The phase two dose is 200 milligrams once day, and it also has been shown to be active even in patients with these resistance mutations. And again, we've provided this material as a practice aid, which you can download and refer to for more information on the non-covalent BTK inhibitor dosing, current regulatory status, and activity against these BTK mutations. Um, here's some data from the Bruin study. This is the trial of pirtobrutinib, um, showing an overall response rate of about 82% um, overall uh, in patients who are dual refractory, so at a BTK and a BCL2 inhibitor, still over a response rate of about 80%. You can see from this water plot that almost all patients, even those who had discontinued BTK inhibitor for progression and those who had also been on a BCL2 inhibitor, did have shrinkage of their lymph nodes. Um, with the most recent update, we saw that the median PFS of pirtobrutinib is 19.6 months. Um, again, you know, this was a relatively heavily pretreated group of patients. Hopefully, if those, these patients are seen a little bit earlier on in their disease course, they would have uh, longer remission durations with this regimen. Um, but more work really needs to be done to figure out what to do with these patients who relapse after pirtobrutinib. Um, as mentioned, pirtobrutinib is very selective and has a low rate of side effects. It is an extremely well-tolerated drug, and we really don't see a lot of those BTK inhibitor-associated toxicities. You can see um, rates of things like AFib, hypertension, um, and even bleeding is much lower than we see with other BTK inhibitors. So nemtabrutinib, again, another non-covalent inhibitor. It's a, a PAN-TAC-PAN-SARC kinase inhibitor, so um, this is thought to potentially be beneficial because there's a lot of targets there that might be helpful in, um, that are important in CLL in general. 
Um, the Bell Wave 001 study is a phase one uh, study of nemtobrutinib. It's m- a much smaller study than pirtobrutinib. Um, had 57 patients that were treated at the uh, recommended phase two dose. Overall response rate is um, about 58%, and that's seen across most risk groups. Um, because it's such a small study and follow-up is relatively short, I think we're not entirely sure what the um, progression-free survival and overall su- or, and um, the response rate is likely to be with longer follow-up. Um, but here we do have a median PFS of about 16 months um, for patients who had a C41S mutation and had received two or more prior therapies. This, again, was a very heavily pretreated group of patients with a median um, of four prior therapies. So some of these principles when faced with resistance to BTK inhibitor, um, venetoclax, again, is the only approved agent with activity. Um, non-covalent inhibitors hopefully will be available for use in the uh, near future, um, but also appear to be very effective in this setting. Drugs like PA3 kinase inhibitors and chemoimmunotherapy really don't work in this setting. Um, I would only use the PA3 kinase inhibitor class um, maybe as a bridge to getting to something else. And again, covalent BTK inhibitors are not going to work. Um, you know, one of the things, I, so I mentioned BTK inhibitor mutations as being associated with resistance. Um, we at Ohio State will check um, for resistance mutations in all of our patients and actually do so during the course of therapy, um, just as another way to kind of measure how patients are doing with treatment. I know that's uh, not uh, done in, in most clinical practices. Um, I, can, I think that it is very helpful to do so when you're considering progression in a patient, um, because sometimes there's uh, kind of blur between what is actual progression and what is something else. Like, do they have an infection? Did they just receive a COVID vaccine? Is there some other reason why their weight count is up? Um, Jeffrey, how about you? Do you ever check for BTK mutations in these patients? Uh, I've not had the opportunity to do so. And I, I, it's a good question. No, I've not had to do that. And I would not know how to do that. So I'm, <laughs> that's something I need to be educated on. Yeah, so there are a number of commercial labs that do offer BTK resistance testing where they'll test for, you know, especially the C41S, but often um, whole gene BTK and PLC gamma 2. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that in community practice, there's not a lot of scenarios where it is imperative that you know that somebody has a mutation. Again, the only time I see it clinically being useful is if you're not entirely sure that a patient is progressing or not, where knowing that they have a resistance mutation might um, make you uh, more certain about the progression. Um, so what are we going to do with Alex who progresses? So like I mentioned, venetoclax with or without an antibody is the approved and probably the best option um, in this setting in the absence of clinical trials. Um, because we know that any therapy after a BTK inhibitor is going to have a relatively short and finite um, remission duration. I think that all of these patients really should be considered for a clinical trial and at least kind of discuss with them whether that it's an option that they might consider because those do represent a good way for our patients to potentially get a novel therapy that's going to lead to even better remission durations. Um, Jeffrey, what do you do in clinical practice when you see these patients? So I hate to admit this to the public, but I'm more comfortable giving FCR than I'm in venetoclax just because of laugh exposure. Um, I'm not saying I would do that for this patient at all. I'd recommend venetoclax for this patient, but it's just one of those drugs I just don't have as much experience with and therefore just a little timid about. Uh, but that's why I'd recommend this patient. And uh, I'd do it probably with rituximab. I, it would be my, my bias. Um, I would definitely go ahead and get them established probably at Ohio State or another tertiary care center, just to get a relationship established for when a trial is available. This is a temporizing therapy. It is not going to be a a long duration of treatment, probably. And so at least get that relationship established so we can move forward with another treatment when it comes time for time of progression. Great. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, venetoclax will work well for a period of time. But I think especially for, you know, patients who are fit, especially, you know, if they are desiring additional therapies beyond the venetoclax, um, it's nice to have them, you know, plugged into a place where they could get a clinical trial if, the, if that is an option. So let's change the scenario just a little bit. What if Alex now has progressed after both a BTK inhibitor and venetoclax? So what, what is this and what can we do in this case? 
Um, so just to define double refractory disease, again, this would be somebody who progresses on a covalent BTK inhibitor um, and either progresses on or very shortly after a venetoclax-based regimen. Um, so pirtubrutinib, again, is effective in these patients. Uh, again, right now only available on clinical trials. Um, but the overall response rate is about 79% in patients who had previously progressed on a BTK inhibitor and venetoclax. Um, and remission duration with this, a median of 16.8 months, um, so fairly close to what we saw in the um, entirety of the patient population treated with pirtubrutinib. Um, there are a number of other strategies, again, available on clinical trials that look like they're going to be uh, relatively effective in this patient population. So CAR-T is something that's very exciting in these patients. Um, bispecific antibodies um, are in clinical trials right now and look like they may have some um, efficacy in these patients as well. And then BTK degrader is this kind of a newer approach, um, which is very exciting because uh, the degrader approach doesn't really matter if there are mutations in BTK or shouldn't matter if there are mutations in BTK. Um, so again, all these things are kind of in the realm of clinical trials, but something to kind of look out for um, in the future as they become even more widely used in CLL. So recommendations, definitely this is a patient that needs a clinical trial if they want to um, you know, continue to have effective therapy for their CLL. Um, Occasionally, you could retreat venetoclax if there was a relatively long remission duration. And, um, you know, we actually did a retrospective study at OSU looking at um, a small group of patients who were refractory to a BTK inhibitor, refractory to venetoclax, where we actually treated them with ibrutinib plus venetoclax. And we can get many of these patients into remission for at least a short period of time. So that's something to consider not as a destination therapy, but really as a bridge if they need something while you're working on getting them to a tertiary center for a clinical trial. Uh, Jeffrey, any um, other comments about that? Luckily, like I said, I'm happy to have you up north uh, just a little bit, uh, not that far away from driving. This would be a, the perfect site for a clinical trial consideration. I would add that if we have, you know, good phase two or phase three data, sometimes we can get these approved off label as long as you, the insurance company is, is agreeable to that. Um, but most times uh, this would be a clinical trial uh, consideration at this point. Okay, so that was a, a whirlwind tour through BTK inhibitors and CLL. So want to kind of consolidate this with some final take homes. Um, so BTK inhibitors are an appropriate frontline therapy for the majority of patients with CLL. Um, the optimal sequence of BTK and BCL2 inhibitors or even potentially the combination of the two is not clear. Um, right now, all of our data suggests that either sequence is currently appropriate. High-risk patients, I really um, think, should be considered for clinical trials at any line of therapy, including in the front line. And those patients who will progress after both BTK and BCL2 inhibitors don't have effective standard options. Many trial treatments are very promising, including the non-covalent BTK inhibitors and cellular therapy. Jeffrey, what are your final take-home? My take home, I think the biggest thing I always have to tell my patients is prepare for the marathon that's in front of them. You know, this is not something they're going to take for two months, six months, uh, like you would like a standard uh, chemotherapy or FCR type regimen. This is something they're going to be on for years. And so you have to balance that quality of life and also the efficacy. And luckily, I think you know, the second generation, more selective BTKIs uh, aid in that. Um, I also remain hesitant uh, to use fixed duration therapy for the very high risk um, complex karyotype or 17PP53 mutation patients. So I almost always uh, recommend uh, continuous therapy with BTKIs in that population as well. Um, you know, with the Elevate uh, Treatment Naive study, that does kind of change my approach a little bit. I think for you know elderly and firm patients or those with transportation issues, single agent BTKI, uh, BTKI is preferred. Um, it's just that the, law, the, the, the beauty of doing oral therapy is that you don't have to come to the office. And with uh, a calbrutinib and you know, benetuzumab, you kind of lose that, uh, you kind of lose that attractiveness. But certainly for very motivated patients and for patients who uh, have no transportation issues, I would consider the combination of those given that 12% improvement in PFS. Um, when it comes to progression, obviously, uh, Pertubrutinib um, and, and the like will be awesome additions that I'll integrate into my practice um, once available. 
And the biggest thing I still don't know is, you know, what is the role for MRD testing in the community setting? And most studies now use that as a measure of, of efficacy and it correlates well to, you know, uh, effectiveness long-term and, and uh, prognosis. And I just don't know what that role is or if that's going to be something that will be uh, integrated into community practice. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, MRD, undetectable state at the end of a venetoclaxin antibody treatment is associated with longer progression-free survival. Um, but right now there is no data to suggest that, you know, if you don't have undetectable MRD that you should continue the venetoclax. So that's what some people do in that setting. Um, I think it's helpful to understand the MRD status at the end of treatment, but probably not absolutely necessary for the majority of, of people. You know, uh, at Ohio State, we often will do flow cytometry to measure MRD just because we have that available in-house. Um, they're also, you know, um, is the option to use the FDA-cleared uh, clonaseq analysis, which is a next-generation um, MRD testing. The important thing with that is you need to have a sample from pretreatment that you can um, use to find the clone. Um, but that's something that actually is is available anywhere. So even if you don't have access to a central lab that does um, flow cytometry and things like that, you can send um, send testing out for clonaseq. I think it can be helpful for uh, for physicians and patients to understand what the prognosis is. But again, right now, it doesn't really guide what you do for treatment. So that concludes our exploration of academic and community perspectives on BTK inhibitor therapy and CLL. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I really enjoyed hearing your perspectives. Thank you for having me. We hope you found this activity informative and useful for your clinical practice. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DWY860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca Lilly and Merkin Company Incorporated.